How shall we begin? You told me what we were going to talk about, but I forgot. You showed me this weird-ass chart, because apparently that's becoming a, a running theme. Well, you know, I I enjoy qualifying my love of movies in as many ways as possible. I like to qualify them with words. I, I do words, too. You do as well. I know. That's the whole reason why we're here, but this is another level. But colorful Excel charts are fun. Yep. You're really getting a lot of mileage out of uh, those lessons. So what, did, what have you watched this week, Chandler? This week? Yeah. Oh, let me check. Uh, <laughs> what did you just watch? Today? Yes. <laughs> I watched The Fanatic. How was that? <laughs> so, okay, the thing about The Fanatic is, uh, you know, I've been... The Fanatic has been hailed as the next great bad movie, you know, a la The Room, Fateful Findings, etc. Sure. Birdemic. It's not that. Because it's not painfully bad. It's very comp. It's actually pretty well shot. It's re- it's well shot. I don't think John Travolta acts terribly. He just acts very weirdly. It's a it's a everyone is unlikable. Everyone is super mean to each other, and the entire idea has been done to death and in many better ways. So by the end, I'm like, this is awful, but it wasn't awful enough for me to enjoy it. I was just bored and frustrated. It sounds like it was just a giant miscalculation. It really was. And there's something to be gleaned from that, but as far as, like, you know, it being an enjoyable bad movie, it wasn't. So I don't know why I just thought of this, but since, well, John Travolta, obviously, but I watched Gotti a few, a year ago or so, whenever it came out, and that's a bad movie. Not, also not entertainingly bad. Um, Oh, really? No, it's just, it's not engaging in any way. Uh, I don't know. See, that's a shame. But the weird connection that my mind just made was that the editing in The Rise of Skywalker reminded me of Gotti. Oh, fantastic. You're never going to let this go. We're going to have to devote a section of the podcast each week to you unearthing new ideas about The Rise of Skywalker. Well, no, but like, this is a very, this is, tell me, this is an unexpected comparison. It is. So there it you is. Go. But there's so much things in Rise of Skywalker you could probably compare it to most anything. No, but I could be misremembering Gotti here, but from what I do remember was that the editing, particularly in the beginning, just jumped around all over the place and there were no actual scenes. I had never seen it, but I had seen the opening scene because I, I think John Travolta's accent is hilarious. Yeah, it... It's one of those movies where you just can't get like a hold of it. Like it's a it's a fish that's squirming and trying to get out of your hands. And just the editor just keeps editing away from the point. And in that sense, it's Gaudi and the Rise of Skywalker share many similar things. <laughs> Not John Travolta though, unfortunately. Rise of Skywalker could have used more John Travolta. Yeah. Uh I also uh rewatched a ghost story. Oh, how is that? It's it's still pretty good. I still think it's painfully slow. You do? Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of what's in it, but the the sort of... It, it feels like a better short film than an actual movie. Uh, that's another film I'm going to put in a category with Last Year at Marion Bad. Oh, well, the thing is, when I was watching it again, I actually found a lot of 
different little parts of the puzzle this time around. Sure. That I actually thought were really interesting and really well hidden within the narrative. But by the end of it, I'm like, that was good, but it's it's so it's so repetitive in the way that it's presented that I just I don't want to ever watch it again. And to be fair, it wasn't my idea to watch it again, but I, I watched it again. And yeah, it's I don't think it's bad. No, Solid I know five. There's quite a few people who really, really love it. And I, I watched it and I, I was never I wasn't sold on it. And I just seem to remember that like last year at Marion Bad, it just the story was spread too thin and would have had more of an impact if it was shorter. Yeah, agreed. Uh, but that's just that's a personal preference. It's certainly it's aiming after a certain person who likes that kind of stuff. And the other movie I watched this week, because I try to do at least three a week, uh, was Her. I rewatched Her. Uh, Her. Is that going on your decade list? No, but I did upgrade it from a four and a half to a five. Oh, very nice. You know what I upgraded from a four and a half to a five? Oh, I saw uh, My Darling Clementine. You did, yeah. I I love My Darling Clementine. I loved it the first time I watched it and watched it again, and it was it was even better. You know, I've only seen a handful of John Ford movies, but that one's my favorite. I'm trying to think of, I know of others, and it's probably my favorite, but I just can't think of any others that I... I like more than it at the moment. Yeah. I only I've only seen the Searchers Stagecoach and My Darling Clementine. So Yeah, well not the widest array. The my my rewatching of My Darling Clementine uh came from a sudden burst of inspiration to write a, a Western script. Oh and I think I will. I think uh, I'm making good progress so far on a on an outline, but we'll see we'll see oh, what happens. Well, as you know, I uh, gave you, I showed you my idea for a, a a movie taking place around a lighthouse as well, and I started an outline on that as well. But I need to do research. I need to get back into more screenwriting. I'm doing. I'm back on the one page a day thing. Oh, that's good. I've been. How's that I've been, been working doing it out? for about th- three days now? Well, because the thing is. I go jogging pretty much every other day, and when I go jogging, all I do is I I make a playlist of music that is sort of it it you know makes me think about the things i'm writing and i just think for like 45 minutes solely about different ideas for a movie script and then i you know i barf it all out into a notepad and then the next day when i'm showered and not sweaty i have so many ideas but i limit myself to one page because that it i'm always like on the brink of wanting to do more but if i limit myself to one page i just get so eager to like write stuff down that that one page comes out really quickly and I and, and very inspired, um, but yeah, it's coming along pretty good. Over the past month, I've written about eleven pages of this thing. Nice, that's eleven more than I have. So, well, you know, you're starting with an outline. Yes, early beginnings. That's I have not even made an outline, but I know how it ends. That's good. I, I see. Think that's the most important part. My yeah, my problem is I never know how they're going to end. I know how they begin. Yeah. But Oh, the beginnings are easy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, deceptively easy, I would say. Well, it's it's very e- it's it's easy to set everything up. It's easy to start. It's not necessarily easy to write a good start though. Yeah. It's something you no, probably well, yeah, need that's... to to revise a few times before it's Yeah, that's why uh so many movies that you uh tend to almost love have the second act slump. The famous, the infamous second act slump. The infamous second act slump. So we're not going to be talking about our 2019 favorites today. 
No, because that is becoming a hassle. Well, yeah. I also, because we mentioned it in the last podcast that we might, but I still have, I don't know about you, but I still have a few 2019 releases that I would like to watch. I have a few, but nothing that is... Pain and Glory, A Hidden Life, nothing that's going to be game-changing. Yeah, probably those two, actually. Now You know, I figure we already talked for two and a half hours on Nick's podcast about it, and... I think we have the luxury of waiting until we've we've seen everything we want from 2019 to officially talk about our, our solidified list. So we might let it sit for a little bit. Maybe around Oscar time, we might come back to it. You know, if people want to figure out our, our top 10 of the uh, 2019, then go to, go to Nick's. Then go to our Letterboxd accounts. Oh, yes. I, I did make mine public. We might want, want to uh, write something for the film sync. We will. Yes. We'll, we'll do some content. We'll figure something out. 2019 is not over. In spirit. It's haunting us. Well, it's technically over. Also, we didn't go to war, so that's good. I, I didn't think we were. I didn't think we were either, but it's still funny to think about. But I was looking forward to it. <laughs> so what are we talking about this week, Jacob? Well, if you ever bother to open up the show notes, which you don't. Oh, did you want me to? No, you don't really need Well, actually, you can. There, there is something oh, that okay. I would like to reference in it. All right. In all caps, it says, The Chart. Oh, no. So, I was watching L'Argent. Uh, L'Argent. L'Argent. L'Argent, yep. L'Argent, uh, last night. And I was watching it, and I was thinking about how the movie was made technically, like how the story was put together. Uh-huh. And for some reason, I've had this concept before of placing movies on a some kind of qualifying chart of like how experimental they are versus how traditional they are. The idea had a few different iterations, but it eventually came out today that there there were two basic like qualifiers that I wanted to organize movies by. And the first is the narrative and then the technical aspects. So have you ever, did you ever do the political compass test? Yeah. Do you know, you know what that is? Okay. Yep. If you didn't, I included a picture of it uh, on the second page. Oh, I'm looking at it. And I'll include it in the actual show notes for the website. The political compass is just placing, you fill out a, a quiz for those of you who don't know, and you answer questions about your political leanings, and it places you on a, a scale with the x-axis being economic with you know left being left right being right and then the y-axis being authoritarian on the top and libertarian on the bottom and you're placed somewhere in these different quadrants and so with that as a starting point i made so that's the political compass and this is the movie compass chandler yeah i get it what was your reaction when i sent it to you i still don't really understand it because i never really understood the political compass either I, I, I don't understand why you can't. It's it's very simple. Yep. All right. Let's <laughs> let's go back to elementary education in graphs. Oh, hold on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So I get I get the political compass. I don't know how I get this though. So on my this is this is this might be out there. It might be crazy. It might be completely useless. So please tell me after I explain it. 
So the x-axis is the narrative axis. And on the left, you have your standard Hollywood narratives. Three-act structure, clearly defined protagonist, linear storytelling, everything your screenwriting professor told you to follow, but not follow too closely. Moral is guidelines. If you were to follow all the guidelines, suggestions, a hundred percent. And then the the right end of the x-axis is abstract narratives. So last year at Marion Bad is way over there in its abstraction of the narrative, where there's not even necessarily a narrative there. Mulholland Drive, and yet in the the y-axis, which is the technical aspect, editing, cinematography design okay. the visual aspect now. so how are how is how abstract how experimental is the the technical means of the film going down so the negatives part of the graph is standard hollywood techniques like three point lighting linear editing pacing is you know normal whatever that means mm-hmm. and set design grounded in reality Whatever, you know, however you want to interpret that. And then at the top of the y-axis, that's experimental and abstract technical. So stuff like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is something that would be like way on the other end of like the set design of technical or, Mm -hmm. you know, using things, using editing and using lighting and cinematography in non-standard ways. Yeah. Anyway, so the point is, is you would put a movie on here and it's really just visualizing how uh, experimental or avant-garde it would be with the bottom left corner being like super traditional Hollywood narratives. Like Paddington 2 is all the way down there. Yeah, it is. It's using, you know, standard filmmaking techniques to their extreme of like, with to perfection, but it's using them in normal ways. It's narrative, you know, Paddington two, Paddington's the protagonist, three act structure, yada yada yada, setup, payoff, so on and so forth. And then on the top right corner, you have the most extreme of experimental films. There's a movie called Decasia. I don't know if you ever. Uh huh. No, I haven't. Decasia is literally just a series of clips of old scratched film that the the whoever made it found like just canisters of thrown away movies that have been like decaying over the years and they didn't even bother restoring them they just put them digitized them and put them in uh made a movie for 90 minutes of watching old decay footage well could we just could we skip that and just call this the uncle boon me corner okay <laughs> have you did you watch Uncle Boom? Boom? No, Me? I haven't. Well, then how do you know? I'm too scared. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's. I'd actually put that more. That's kind of towards the center. Technically, it's, it's not. It's not out there. Well, I suppose the editing is really. It's not doing you any favors for the the mainstream audiences. No, it isn't. Nor are these furry people. You you could make the argument that anything in the bottom left corner. That's the majority of audiences will find entertaining. Yeah. And then anything in the top right corner is, you know, throw it away, abandon hope if you want to try to get your friends to like it. Yeah. And then there's the spectrum in the middle. Thoughts. 
I mean, I, I can see how this would work, but I, I have difficulty explaining or difficulty coming up with, like, objective ways to uh, categorize certain things. Like, a movie that came to my mind, for example, was Fargo, which, as far as narrative goes, you could consider it a very standard narrative because it does have a very clear three-act structure but at the same time it's also a very experimental narrative because these three acts despite being almost pitch perfect follow like almost completely different people with each act so that be in the middle or something like that i don't i the only thing I, i don't understand is the difference between abstract technicality and standard technicality i'm trying i'm trying to think of a good example and Part of the reason why this fascinates me so and why I wanted to get your opinion on this is that there isn't a set way of qualifying movies on here. There's not a set way of qualifying movies, period. Well, it depends. Box office, yes. Aesthetics, no. But box office wouldn't... Okay, you're right, you're right. You could add, you could add a Z-axis and it's the box office. Yes. This is what it needed. It needed the Z-axis. It was missing another axis. It wasn't complicated already. <laughs> it would be funny to see a Z-axis for just... Then you can make correlations on movies where they lie and then on this uh, this XY-axis and how that translates into profits. Because <laughs> this bottom left would typically be way up high on the Z-axis. Oh yeah, the top left, uh, this is the no-profit zone. Yes. I just imagined a, a guy in like a boardroom with a with a chart and pointing to it, with a 3D chart. Oh no. And he's been speaking for an hour, just drawing lines of nonsense between all these different points in a 3D space. And then he turns back to the boardroom and is like, and this is why... You know, he comes to some greater point, and the whole boardroom is just looking at this chart of mat, like this this uh, this maze of madness. Well, it's you know, it's interesting that you bring up this chart and have created this chart because I don't know if you heard over the past few days, but Warner Brothers is uh, trying out like this algorithm or this machine that like observes movie data and then uses that to create best like. It observes trends and box office numbers and the traits of those movies that do well, and it'll use that to like generate stories and actors for those stories to get the best possible like uh, uh, returns. So it's essentially the uh, screenwriter's worst nightmare. Essentially, yes. So it'd be interesting if a movie like you know, or a, an algorithm or something incorporated a chart like this in determining. I guess they would want nothing but bottom left kind of stories. I think there's a degree to which Hollywood tends to underestimate the the new and the kind of edgy in not necessarily experimental, but just something that doesn't fit the mold. And that's what audiences want. Well, that's how we progress as far as uh, culture and trends go. You get those things that break the mold and then that broken mold reshapes to a new mold well because the, the the fact of the matter is is disney cannot keep remaking their old classics eventually they will they run can't. out soon sooner rather than later and yep they must eventually come to terms with oh we have to come up with a new idea that's why so i would generally say that the bottom right corner 
which I, I have labeled the narrative twist corner, that that's the... Let's call that the Nolan corner. Yeah. You know, I was looking for... I, I really could not place that many movies in that corner, in that side of the chart, but Nolan's a good one. I also thought of Psycho. Nolan corner. Yo, I was I was thinking Psycho too. Psycho's a movie where it's it's very filmed, very kind of classic. Yeah. Classically, um, not too many surprises there. With the maybe with the shower editing sequence that was a bit bold. Yeah. But yeah. in general, it's fairly standard. But it's the narrative that really threw people for a loop. Where would you put uh, a majority of David Fincher's filmography? I almost feel like you have to label quadrants now. See, you also I've color coded quadrants within quadrants so you've color-coded them but this is like degrees of of color difference i don't know how it even began to describe these yeah that's the whole point i'm not trying to not trying to make it a rainbow i'm trying to think of movies that are at the center something like citizen kane might be at the center of this of this chart i feel like that's well contextually speaking i feel like that's a very abstract narrative yeah, it's it's lean. I don't think there's anything. Nothing exists in the center of this chart. Ooh, I got one. What, okay. I think the closest thing that I can currently think of at being at the exact center of this chart would be the Wizard of Oz. You could you could make an argument for that. I, I'm not sure it's at the exact center. At le- not maybe not the exact center, but very close. It would stray a little bit towards the standard narrative, just a little bit. I don't know, because I think the actual narrative itself is pretty standard, but the specifics of the narrative are pretty abstract. Yeah, and then it also comes down to how you want to qualify abstract or experimental uh, narrative. And I would put it a little skewed a little to the left towards standard. Well, the way my reasoning is that it's familiar story beats in an unfamiliar world. Yeah. The other movie that comes to mind that i'd want to put close to the center is parasite (laughs) i don't but the thing about parasite is i don't know is there any real abstract technical stuff to parasite because yes i agree with the narrative but the technical stuff seems pretty standard there's some stuff very well executed but standard and i think it does tend towards a little a little south of the pole towards the standard narrative or the standard technical aspect yeah. but it does have things like the the birthday cake shot the the ghost yeah. sequence yeah you're right you're right it does have little horror bits because it's important to realize that the center isn't it's not experimental but it's also not standard and i don't think anything about parasite is no you're right standard but it's also not it it's weird it's weird to think about and it it Again, this chart is just an interesting mind exercise. It is. I think a lot of people are going to see this chart in different ways. Yes. When we get to our, our conversation on Le Argent, that was, that was the, the start of this. So I'd be interested to, to see where you would put that on the chart. Oh, God. I, I think this is just you trying to map every movie we watch on this chart. The, it, it may turn into a reoccurring segment. Okay, fine. Maybe. You you, you can veto that. Uh, yeah, I'm not opposed. I like this chart. Maybe at the end we'll put all 100 plus movies, you know, little dots on the chart. Oh, God. And we'll, draw, we'll be able to draw crazy lines between things and we'll say, and that's why Le Samurai is the perfect film. 
<laughs> According to the numbers. Well, the numbers don't lie. They don't. Only people do. All right. Little Women. Yes. By our our fan favorite, Greta Gerwig. Who doesn't like Greta Gerwig, honestly? Actually, no. Not fan favorite. Company favorite, Greta Gerwig. Yeah. I don't know. A single person doesn't like these movies. And if they are, they're lying. I can't, I can't say for our, our listeners, but I can say that every single uh, unofficial employee of the film sync loves Greta Gerwig. She is, she is a cinematic salt. Everything you put on, everything yeah, that has her is just a little bit better for it. All right. I'll go with it. I see it. I, I was a fan of this movie. I liked it. Not as much as Lady Bird, but I really liked it. Really? I, I think I enjoy this a lot more than Lady Bird. A lot more? A lot Ooh. more. Not saying it's better. Yeah, no, I get it. Me personally, I just enjoyed it more. Well, as we stated a few episodes ago, my my favorite uh, genre of story is the is the high school end of high school movie. Mm-hmm. Which coincidentally, I don't know if you heard, but Paul Thomas Anderson's next movie is going to be one of those. Very excited, and so I think that's why I liked Lady Bird a little bit more. But I was just was, this movie is so warm. It's not wholesome, but it's warm. I think I think it gets it has little moments of wholesomeness. Oh yes, it's it's interesting that I was watching this. I the day that I finished this, or the day that I finished Fanny and Alexander, I think is the day I went to go see this. It's very similar. Those are a good pairing. It it is a good pairing. You're you you're pairing the wine and the cheese together correctly. I think the thing I was most blown away with this movie is just the structure of it all. Editing and the narrative, the way that Greta has constructed the film is by far the most unique thing about this adaptation of Little Women and probably the best thing from a technical aspect. It really is, though. Yeah, because you, we only ever needed to know, we only got one title card distinguishing the two time periods. And then for the rest of the movie, those jumps between the present and the past were never jarring. I think that's mainly to do with the color. But even then, she conveys the passage of time so well with nothing but visuals. And the pacing, even though movies like this that are constantly jumping between two time periods always feel a little bloated. But this felt, I mean, it's still long because it was a longer than two hours movie, but it didn't feel, it still felt like its exact runtime. Yeah, the thing that I think was really strong about the decision to intercut between the time periods, because the novel is one linear timeline, yeah. is that this intercutting and the way that it is intercut is putting a lot more focus on the the character journey of the different women and the thematic implications of those journeys. What's well, the thing is that a lot of movies that do this cut between present and past, it's usually it's the you see the past and that immediately informs the present. But the way that this works in this is that we see the present and then the past. And every time we cut back to the present, the time we spent in the past informs a little bit of what we know about the present. But then there'll be like an allusion to the past when we go to the present that then informs us when we go back to the past. So like they're constantly juggling different story beats between each other 
and teasing things and also showing you things. I think that's a huge part of why it's so well paced for me. Yeah, it's not a one way street. It's not, you know, we're going because sometimes the these narratives tend to be, you know, your the the primary narrative is in the Uh present and you're jumping back to inform on that. And it's a one way information trip there. But here it's constantly switching up how one is informing on the other. And like in the very beginning, you have a scene in the present where the movie tells you that Teddy rejected Joe. Yeah. So that's not a twist. You don't see that scene until the very end of the movie, essentially. It's in the last third of the film. So you're told the the result long before you ever see it. It's amazing that that works as well as it does. It really, yeah, because again, when I when I saw where this was going as far as the the time jumps, I was kind of hesitant because these kind of movies are usually exhausting for me. But nope, she juggled it perfectly. It's a wonder that it works as well as it does. Part of it is because. You know, you have a super solid cast of people. You got Saoirse Ronan. You got uh, Florence Pugh. You got you got Laura Dern. Why could I not think of Laura Dern? I oh, love some. You besmirch Laura Laura's name. I'm sorry. Well, quick spoiler alert. I'm going to say something right now, and you can jump to about 15 seconds after I say after I snap. Uh, surprise Bob Odenkirk is never a bad that thing. That was the the only real surprise in the in the movie. Because I knew he was, I knew there's, you know, they're alluding to the father, and I, part of me thought the father wasn't going to live, and then we see the father, and I'm like, oh, oh, a little bit of Bob. Yeah, I haven't seen, I saw the 1990s version of Little Women. With Winona Ryder and Christian I Bale. Think, I honestly do not remember which one I've seen. I've seen one of the adaptations before and it's been many years and so i didn't remember if the father was in it at all so it was essentially like i knew the basic premise of the whole thing but i didn't really remember much of the details so it was essentially a new narrative for me but the thing that little women does is it's it's kind of a character study of four young women and yeah it's like i said there's no surprises in the movie there's no twists or turn it's not trying to keep you riding on tension and it's more developing the characters and seeing how they're developing from you know the past and where their their lives are going in the future and and you just want to see everything work out and you know it is going to work out because it's such a a warm movie and you know that joe not getting together with teddy is you know ultimately the right thing yeah and, uh, you know, Bob Odenkirk was the only surprise in there. The genuine. And that's not even part of the narrative. It's just because he's not in any of the promotional no, material. Like... And yeah, sp- continuing spoilers, I guess. I mean, it's not really a spoiler. I, it's not It's not a movie spoiler. It's just like, I don't know. Most people maybe don't share the same affinity that we do for Bob Odenkirk. I think a lot of people like but him. I love me some Bob. He's a popular yeah, guy. Yeah, that's true. He is. It's been a while since a movie has managed to hide such a big name from me and then 
mm-hmm. just drop him into the narrative like two thirds of the way through. Oh, quick question. Completely out of left field and not relevant to this discussion at all, sort of. Uh, but Tenet, the new Christopher Nolan movie, there is a theory that it is a sequel to Inception and that Leonardo DiCaprio will be there. Uh, I don't know how they'd be able to hide that, but I just thought I'd tell you. Uh, anyways, uh, one, you know, I was watching this because Greta Gerwig's a big name. I think she's a big name in like the filmmaking community, not necessarily outside of it. Well, you know, she's got a lot of Oscar buzz around her, too. And it's the same thing with Jordan Peele, where they became, like, huge off of one movie. And then when I went to their second movie, I thought, okay, these are, like, really hot directors right now. I'm going to start looking for, like, director trademarks. I'm trying to see what makes them them. And with Jordan Peele, you know, obviously a lot of it has to do with the writing, you know, a lot of uh, biting racial stuff um, in his movies and using infusing race into certain genres horror he's a very horror centric guy and comedy um but uh when i was going into this one i'm like what is what is greta gerwig what is she about and at the end of the movie i realized that there wasn't any crazy um stylistic thing you know she's not like doing the uh, uh edgar wright's fast cuts or the martin scorsese tracking shots i realized that at the end of little women what makes her movies so good at least to me, is that she cares about every single character in her movies. Yeah, I was going to say that the way I would put it would be is her her empathetic response to the characters in her film and this desire to express every character in a way that is shines a positive light on them. It's like, so obviously movies need antagonists, you know, antagonistic forces in both this and uh, Ladybird have quote unquote antagonists, but even those antagonists are kind of like we understand why they are the way they are. Well, I'd say it's less less of a antagonist kind of deal, and it's more of a the the characters themselves are their own inhibitors to their own growth, and it's less the, of a, the, a singular. The closest thing to she has to antagonists without actually like I consider the. Um, the boarding school boyfriend, what's his name? The one she ends up marrying at the end, I forget his name. Oh, she doesn't end up marrying him. Well, gets together with him at the end. Him and then the mother from Ladybird. They aren't antagonists. They actually care very deeply for the protagonist, but they have this sort of personal conflict between each other. But again, you can't even call them antagonists because everybody in these movies gets so much depth that you understand and sympathize with even if you don't agree with them. Yeah, it's I would just flat out say that there's not really an antagonist, not in any traditional sense of that word. And particularly in Ladybird, like you the only person that comes to mind really is the mother, but you can't say that she's an antagonist because No, she's not. I'm just saying that she has the most antagonism in the movie. Right. But it's kind of a false antagonism where it's the protagonist and their own uh, Ladybird's own like personal struggles that bring her into conflict with her mother in in ways that aren't necessarily no one's trying to no one's trying to win anything necessarily yeah yeah uh, but there's there's stubborn wills and they're clashing but you understand both sides equally and it's particularly in Little Women it's just filled with characters that. You understand almost everyone in the movie on some degree, on some level. Even the 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 uncle or the father, 
to Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. He's barely in it, but the, he the has neighbor. a very clear arc as well. Yeah. It was great. It was just a a movie that was about a bunch of people trying to find their way in the world. The closest thing I can come up with with describing this is character dramedy. Yeah. It's just so warm and wonderful and there were uh, the cinematography I think really goes a long way to like you said distinguishing those two eras of the the time frame but also of creating that that warmth and there's a few shots in the from like the past where it's almost like the the idyllic version of America and of like a Christmas morning and like countryside shots that are just mm-hmm. blissful to look at. Very indicative of like the whole narrative isn't trying to not conflict. It's just trying to show you a little little slice of these characters and this world. It's 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 the same thing I thought with Ladybird cinematography. It wasn't like there weren't any crazy camera tricks or any certain shots I remember, but every single shot captured the spirit and aesthetic of the individual scenes very well. She's a very subtle minimal director but i think that works best because it it puts it pushes the thing that she does best which is characters to the forefront uh every performance is fantastic in this movie and i think i i i really can't decide if i like saoirse ronan and florence Pugh better also we never we didn't mention emma watson who is great as well oh yeah she was great too she just had a, a much smaller part in the movie and i don't i consider i mean she was definitely good but she's not even like the top half of best performances in this movie. But as again, there's not a single bad or weak performance in this movie. Everyone is either good or amazing. But yeah, I can't decide between Florence Pugh and Saoirse Ronan. I'm going to go I'm with leaning Florence towards Saoirse Pugh. Ronan. Interesting. Well, I'm glad we both <laughs> went different ways. It was a split take. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, I have a lot of respect for Florence Pugh because one of the, the only major issues I had with this movie was uh the scenes with Florence Pugh as a 14 year old come on <laughs> i don't know it didn't bother me it was i'm mean, that's the thing is that like at the same time i'm like okay this woman is clearly like 23 in a classroom of 12 year olds but at the same time i'm like but she is nailing the the like attitude of a 12 to 14 year old yeah that's all you needed that's all you needed, but I'm just like, okay, you're taking so many liberties with the story. You could take a little liberty here. For me, I didn't spend any longer than a second or two thinking about how out of place she looked. For me, it was that entire, it was her in the classroom. It was her crying afterwards. I just thought this is ridiculous. And then after that, I immediately forgot about it. And then on the ride home after the movie, I was like, oh, hey, remember when Florence Pugh was 12 years old? <laughs> Oh, so dumb. But that's the only part. I th- there's, I'm trying to remember. If th- I think there's one other issue I had with it. The issue that I had with it was that around the two thirds mark, it feels like it's building to a few things, maybe a climax, and there's not really a, a clear direction where it's going. So it does. It feels a little bit like, are we at the climax yet? Are we finishing up, or is it still going? And yeah, yeah. that just I got that feeling a little bit when changing scenes every once in a while near the end, but that's not necessarily me saying that the pacing was off. It still worked well for me. I just didn't I didn't have a good sense of where it was going, and that's you're, it. You're saying it's it's the it's the equivalent of a gymnast 
doing a crazy little flip off a spring, landing and then shaking a little bit, but still having poise and then doing the pose? No. <laughs> I'd say it's more I worked like... a long time on that metaphor. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I, I'll continue the gymnast metaphor. I'd say it's more like the gymnast is swinging around the pole uh-huh. and just keeps swinging and you want to, and you're not sure you think, Oh, she's going to let go this time. Oh, she's okay, going to let gotcha. go this time. Yeah. And it, it just, and then you're not complaining that she's, the gymnast is keep doing it. Cause it's amazing to look at and great skill. And she's very flexible, but you're just, there's a little bit of uncertainty as to where things are going. And that's it. Uh, I do remember my other flaw. Quick one. Uh, it's a story spoiler. Spoiler. So we'll go with that real quick. It's a little one. Uh, so at the end, when Florence Pugh and Timothy Chalamet, you know, they're getting together in London, I think somewhere in Europe, and Timothy Chalamet is like proposes to her, and then she's like, "Oh, I'm your second choice. I've always been second to Joe, whatever." And then she talks to Meryl Streep, and I don't think she Meryl Streep did a really good job at changing her mind. Uh, and then she, for some reason, decides, nah, I, I'm I'm not the second choice. And then she decides to marry him. And I just didn't think there was any real revelation or reason for her to think otherwise, because she clearly was the second choice. And that was the only other thing that bothered me. Yeah, I I can't disagree with you there. I would say that I did get the feeling that it leaned a little bit every once in a while towards melodrama towards the end. Uh in a way that it didn't earlier in the in the film, it was mostly grounded in, in character. Yeah, but it did, uh-huh. particularly you know when it came to marriage and all that. Will they or won't they or you know all that? It was a little melodramatic and never veered too much into that where I minded. Well, it's not like imitation of a life. No, thank God. <laughs> this is infinitely better than imitation of life. Put. Little Women on the BFI list, for goodness sake. What? What did you end up giving Imitation of Life out of five? I gave it three, just because I didn't oh, want to think about it anymore. You're generous. I was very generous. I gave it a two, yeah. yeah I couldn't... <laughs> two was low, but I can't... Can't fight you on it. Yeah. I would put Imitation of Life on my chart. Way, way down there on the the standard Hollywood technical. Okay. And interesting, not quite. Oh, it's very standard. Not quite a traditional narrative because it does. Yeah, doesn't I focus on it's one probably, protagonist. It's probably but, very on the bottom. You're right. Yeah, it's all the way down there. But Little Women, if we're putting that one on the chart, it's certainly it's it's creeping towards the center there because it it is narratively it, unconventional. It, you're right, though, and technically, uh, it's pretty. It's pretty. It's not standard, but it. I don't know. I think it's pretty standard. Well, no, you're right. You're right. The oh, no, okay. I meant to say it is standard, but it does take little bursts of whatever. Yeah. There is a general framing and aesthetic that is not super standard. It's like a super cozy version of standard yeah. technical. So I would say it's like halfway down to standard Hollywood technical. You know, I almost want to requalify that and say that standard is thinking of standard as like a sitcom lighting situation. That's standard. Yeah, uh, just classic shot reverse shot, no real special blocking, I would say. Two medium closes and a wide. Yeah, this is creeping up towards the middle there because you would never see a, a normal Hollywood movie shot this way. 
You're right. You should, though. You're right. You should see more movies shot creatively, but, you know. Oh, I had the... Uh, speaking of uh, how it looks, I had the opportunity to watch it on 35mm. Oh, how'd that at look? At the loft. That, it was fun. It, there was a moment where I think the projectionist forgot to switch the reels. Mm-hmm. So it went bla- the screen went black for a little bit. The sound kept going for uh, 15 uh, seconds. So It was black for 15 seconds? Yeah, it was it was a a wow. fair uh, mix up by the projection. That's gotta be insane when you have like a theater that you know shows film every once in a while because I'm sure those screenings are just full of those little mistakes just because of the sheer amount of time that they're just you know just streaming or, or showing digital. Yeah, well, they've been pretty good about it so far because they've gone to quite a few. Because the loft is very very cinephile uh, heavy. I wonder if. I'm assuming it's the standard, you know, there's someone back there switching the reels and all that. I don't know if they've invented better it's ways. the Italian guy from Cinema Paradiso. Mario, I don't remember his name. It's Shoshana from Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, this is a great movie. I was going to give great it a movie. More people should see it. I don't know if we want to, we, do we want to even broach the subject? Because it has been a little bit of a controversial thing of... You know, people have been saying that men don't want to go see Little Women. What? Eh, I didn't even know that was a controversy. Okay. I don't know. I think you don't have to be a woman to enjoy woman-led movies. I don't understand this idea. I'll just say that there is, I feel, a disconnect between movies that are seen for like general wider audiences and, you know, starring mostly men, stories about guys that are seen as, oh, everyone likes this movie, and then you have something... Like Little Women, because there has been, uh, you haven't noticed it, but I have seen one or two articles about it on online of where men aren't as interested and it's not necessarily as advertised to everyone. It's seen more as not necessarily a chick flick, but more as like that's the target audience. Well, that's the thing about movies as far as why I watch them is to experience perspectives that I do not have. But that's not why most people go to movies. Yeah, I know. Which is unfortunate. Which is unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, dumb. Go see Little Women. It's great. It is. I can't I can't say anything more than... Seriously, yeah, it's great. Everyone would like it. It's wholesome. It's warm. It's got a little something for everybody. Yeah. Why not? You can do... You could... There's a lot worse out there right now. Way worse. Yes. All right, going to the next one. We are now talking about our BFI movie of the week, which let me get the list out. This is Le Argent from 1983, director Robert Bresson. I think Robert. I've been saying Robert this whole time. Robert Bresson. It's probably Robert, or maybe it's Robert, I'm sure it is. but it's French. So yeah, you're right. I must you're right. assume that they're dropping the T. But I am no French expert, as proven last episode when I butchered both the movie title and the director name. I think I have a better grasp on it this week. But this is our third or fourth French film on this list. Uh, it would be Last Year in Mary and Bad, Le Samurai. Yeah, Earrings Madame Day. So yeah, fourth. fourth. This is our first film from Robert Bréjean. It will not be our last. And what did you think of... Le Argent. Move over, Earrings of Madame Day. This is my new favorite. Is it really? It is, yeah. I really like this. Wow. I 
Chandler, I am so excited. Do you know why? Because you didn't. Because this is this is the first time that we get to have a a genuine split take on something. Oh no! <laughs> don't 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 say oh no. I want to say we need more movies yeah, that we true. don't have the same freaking opinion okay. on. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Although I will say I did not dislike L'Argent. And right. I'm just going to put this out there that this film is the anti-Paddington 2. The anti-Paddington 2. As far as what? It's technically it's kind of following one narrative, but it's it's a ensemble cast. Yeah. Where everyone is an asshole. And if they just stopped being an asshole, maybe things would start working out better for You're everyone. You're not wrong about that. You know, Paddington 2 begins with him doing good deeds. And this one begins with someone <laughs> doing a shitty thing and yes. it just gets worse yes. from there. Now, here's the interesting part is that on paper, I shouldn't like this movie. And this is the second Brisson movie I've seen in a month. I saw A Man Escaped for the first time about a month ago. Uh, and I was all right on that. I wasn't a huge fan of it. I don't know how you feel about that, but I was. Yeah, it was okay. I didn't. Want, I haven't seen. The Man it. Escaped. It's interesting because nope. it's 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 one of the more uh, one of the higher rated movies on Letterboxd. Yeah, I've seen Pickpocket, oh, okay. which I, I was lukewarm on, okay. and I've seen uh, uh, the Balthazar one. Oh, uh, uh, Hazard Balthazar with the donkey. Alhuzal Balhuzal. Yes. That one, which I was also lukewarm on. You sound like the dad from Parasite, the rich one. Okay, so yeah, on paper, I, I felt like I shouldn't like this movie. Because I feel like w the movies we've seen so far have been, to me at least, in two very distinct categories. Uh, great movies told very subtly and minimalist as far as execution goes. And kind of stupid stories that are shot amazingly. You know, the critics and the director's movies. To simplify yeah. it. And this one is... The Soy Cubas yes. versus the Madame Days of yes. the world. And I have definitely been leaning more towards the critics' ones. And it's interesting because we had the critic one last week that I hated. <laughs> We've only had two critic ones and you hated one and you loved yes. the other. So, uh, And I hated the critic one last week and I loved the director one this week. And a majority of the reason why I love it is because of the directing. And I, I decided to do a little research on this, and this was Brisson's last movie, made in 83. And I was surprised by that, because, it you know, it definitely feels 80s as far as the camera quality goes. But it's a very vintage-looking movie in a lot of other ways. And I, I saw that he, this was his last movie, and he won Best Director at Cannes. And I'm like, that is exactly what he deserves, because I agree the story is kind of dumb. <laughs> Not horribly stupid. And I thought in retrospect it was interesting that all of this, all of the escalation of conflict comes from one decision, one greedy decision. And that part I enjoyed. I think it definitely goes a little off the rails in the last 10 or 20 minutes. Um, but a huge part of why I like this movie so much is because it's such a tactile movie. It's so... What do you mean by tactile? I mean, it's mainly... Maybe tactile is not the right word because it's mainly to do with the audio design and just the simplicity of everything. There's so many different shots of, like, opening chests and handing off money and starting cars and opening letters. And they're so simple, but they're so elegantly staged 
the sound design is so crisp and I don't know, it's just I really enjoyed the presentation of it so much to the point where I didn't care how stupid the story was. So I'm gonna bring this back to the 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 movie chart. Okay. And well, why I was thinking chart. of that while watching this. Because it is an incredibly simply made movie. Very simply made. Not standard in any way. Yeah. Which is why I, I was thinking about this, because it's not standard. And it's not necessarily experimental, but I also don't think it's it's somewhere in between those two, but it's not in the middle. It's this kind of indescribable uniqueness, and I think it's the closest I've ever seen to a robot directing, <laughs> but not it doesn't feel robotic. Yeah, no, I get you it. You know what I mean? It's very efficient. But it's not like um, cachet levels of simplicity. Yeah, where it's, yeah like one shot per the scene sometimes it's there are sometimes scenes where it's you know just two shots or just a few shots and most of the action is taking place in these medium to wide shots nothing super it's usually not super wide it usually doesn't get super super close up either but there are close ups and but most of it's just these kind of standard, these well-framed shots showing you the action in the most efficient way possible. And then every once in a while, it will cut into close-ups of actions, like you said, of opening things, of pressing buttons, of setting a glass down. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was focused on the the, the minutia, the, the act of doing things, of opening letters, of waiting in a car, of... You know, people doing things that aren't necessarily all that cinematic, but visually, this this very kind of stripped down style worked extremely well for me. Um, and where I ran into the issue was the narrative. Yeah, and this is why it's so crazy to me because again, I I could look at this movie from an objective point of view, but I was just so in tranced by the actual presentation that I didn't even want to think about the narrative. And it's such a simple movie and going off of what you said the execution and there's a few different times where I thought about this um, because I've seen a decent amount of really really bad B movies not as much as you have but in these really really bad B movies a lot of things that have a lot of times what happens is that you have like just a camera in a wide and everything in the scene is happening in the wide. You don't go to mediums. You don't do, go to close-ups. You don't cut anything. It's just two people talking in front of a camera and it looks boring and it looks stupid. And they walk around, they do things, but it's not interesting what they do. And I thought, what is he doing here that actually makes it super interesting? Because I'll, the st- I would say the standard shot length for this movie is somewhere around between six and eight seconds. Not a lot of cuts, um, just a lot of wide shots of people doing things, and I don't know why I found it so mesmerizing. So I, I, I started this discussion by saying that I wasn't a fan of it. Yeah. Which isn't strictly true. I think it was. it really worked for me on a lot of different levels. And I think more on an intellectual level, I was engaged than on an emotional level. Uh And for me, I think this would be a great movie to study, like you said, 
of why are the things that Brejean is doing here, why are they working? Because it isn't like those B-movies where it's, you know, just wide shots and kind of they stuck the camera someplace just for efficiency purposes. Yeah. This is efficient too, but as I mentioned earlier, they're not that many wide shots. Yeah. It's it's a lot of mediums and carefully framed the action in a way that you'd never get more than you need. The first thing that comes to mind is the the shot that introduces us to the it's not really the main character, but he's the the guy. I don't know what to call him other than Which that. Which guy? The heating guy? The guy who goes to jail? Yeah, the the heating the guy who has the the worker truck. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it I starts by showing him doing his work at the truck. And you don't see his face for a good 30 seconds. And that was very interesting. You didn't, you, again, it's focusing on the, the, the actions of doing things. Yeah. And you're never shown more, you're not shown too little, and you're not shown more than you need. I haven't, I don't really have a good grasp on what Frejean is doing. But it is, on a technical level, very interesting to me. And this film, more so than Pickpocket or Balthazar, captured me on a technical level. Yeah. And I, another part of the technicals um, part of this uh, that I enjoyed was um, the colors as well. There's a very specific shade of blue in this movie that I very much enjoy. Yeah, it's really hard to explain because, again, I don't know what he's doing that makes me like it so much. Because there's not really much about the story that I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I, I, I enjoy that the entire thing is just a – it's almost like a Coen Brothers-esque um, de-escalation of one simple mistake but it seems like it's trying to say a lot about greed but doesn't necessarily do much I think the turn that the, the main guy the, he turns into a serial killer for the last 20 minutes I'm like this is kind of stupid <laughs> yeah I'm gonna say that right off the bat I need to watch this again eventually yeah and I think I need to it's not like it's not like Soy Cuba where I watched it twice in two days. This I feel like I need to sit with it for a little bit and come back to it eventually. And I think I might have a Cause, better. Because you watched it yesterday, yeah. right? Okay, I watched it two days ago. And I th- I do think for the record that I think that the earrings of Madame Day is technically a better movie in just about every way. But there is something that, uh, again something that I cannot explain about this movie that just gripped me like no other movie has so far on this uh, our list. Right. So speaking of the story, it follows it begins with a boy who needs money to pay someone back at school and he goes to a friend and his friend has a forged mm-hmm. bill a 500 franc bill. it's a hard story to explain yeah especially for a movie that's like 80 minutes yeah it's short which was really nice he ta- they take the bill to this picture uh photography shop yep and they pass it off and from there the bill changes hands a few times and then we follow those the few groups of people who touch the bill. It's it's an ensemble piece. It follows a few different characters, and there is kind of this main character who we follow through to He's the very end. Essentially, the main character, yeah, French Superman. Really, the movie does not focus on him until the last third. Yeah, it's equal shared screen time between a few different groups of people. And I'll admit that was hard to get into at the beginning. I actually found the ending to be the most engaging part. I'm not saying it's the best part, but that was the part I was engaged in. The general reaction I had to the narrative of this film was I just wrote a giant why. 
<laughs> on my notepad where I was constantly questioning why people were doing some of the things they were doing. Yeah, I don't know why the 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 Photoshop owners lied. That like, Couldn't they just it, say who they got the bill from? I think the point of the narrative is that it's it's taking a very pessimistic view of human interaction mm-hmm. where almost in the way that to some degree that parasite was doing yeah where no one wants to help anyone else everyone's looking out for themselves and it doesn't matter if they're screwing over someone else and from that perspective it's an incredibly tight film yeah where it doesn't deviate from that thematic question or it's an exploration, not necessarily asking any questions. Mm-hmm. And the only characters, there are two characters, I think, that actually help people. The assistant in the photography shop that gets fired and then robs them and then... He becomes a Robin Hood. Th- yeah, he gives away the money. But we never see that. There's no firm grasp on whether he is actually an altruistic person. But there's the woman at the end is the only kind of ray of hope in the film. <laughs> she and, gets murdered. Oh, it's such a depressing ending. It is. Actually, it's not depressing because I wasn't emotionally engaged. But if I was emotionally engaged, it would be depressing. At the end, too, I was like, okay, you murdered them. Okay, but also, why are you confessing? What revelation did you have? That's the thing is that I I almost want to end this podcast because I don't want to think about the movie. I don't want to think about the plot and sully my enjoyment of it. But yeah. It's, uh, you know that movie, um, you've seen it, uh, Tokyo Drifter? Yeah. It's it's similar to that, where the more and more I think about Tokyo Drifter, I'm like, this is so dumb. <laughs> but I love the way it's shot. <laughs> if the critics can put, or if the directors can put their stupid, only flashy, no substance movies on here, I'm going to enjoy them too. And I think a, I think there is a, a larger idea here that I think it's executed semi-well in that it's these harmless little greed decisions little greedy decisions like the counterfeits and stuff like that that seem in the moment like not a big deal end up hurting working people the most which i think can speak to a larger truth about greed in general which again i'm grasping there because it definitely doesn't explore that idea very well but all i can say is at the end i enjoyed it i was entertained i think it's it's a little like I said, it's mechanical and in that way contrived. Mm-hmm. But everything I'm we're discussing here is done on purpose. Yeah. So it's one of those it's one of those things where if it's your it's not my cup of tea, it didn't latch me this first time. But I do feel like on another viewing, when I'm more prepared for that those contrivances mm-hmm. that are there for the thematic purpose. And the kind of mechanical nature of uh, Brajan's directing, I think it could land much better on a second attempt. It might not even be like because you're saying you don't want to think about it all that much because it, it might make it worse. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's there. I don't think it's a it's a great it's a very well made movie. I think it can only go up in my in my personal estimation. Yeah, and the only reason why I I just didn't latch on to any of the characters because they were doing I wasn't necessarily prepared. For the kind of idiocy, the selfish idiocy that propels the plot forward. Yeah. There's a moment where our main character, he gets fired from his job and his wife says, well, why don't you go and explain to them they might let you keep your job? And then he says, and I quote, I won't go crawling to them like a dog. 
And then at that point, I was just like, okay, so essentially you're letting your pride get in the way (laughs) of a good job. And everything that happens after this point is your own goddamn fault. It is. And I have been disassociated with this character at this moment. And every character was like that, where there was a moment. Except for the lady at the end. Right. But every character, there's a moment where you might you might get like a few minutes of like, oh, these this person seems like a normal person. And then it's like, oh, no, they just did something and really screwed over someone else. I'm not going to defend it. <laughs> oh, you don't need to. Yeah. Again, this is why it's so fascinating to me, because this is usually the kind of movie I hate. Yeah, but also you do like movies with terrible protagonists. I do. I do enjoy me uh, an ass. But this guy isn't even like likably unlikable. <laughs> He's an asshole. He does just start murdering people at the end. He does and for you're no left reason. wondering why. And this is another thing where I'm like, this is an amazing B movie. Because if, if this happened in like a stupid B movie, I would just be yelling at the screen. But I'm like, nope, you go, French Henry Cavill. She deserved it, I guess. <laughs> French Henry Cavill. He that, looked like Henry good. Cavill. Didn't you yes. not think so? Okay. Yes. Well, I didn't I did not make that connection till now when you said it, but it is yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. The last thing I'll say is the one visually very interesting shot I found was the the old man at the end. He sets a glass down at, on the edge of a piano. Do you remember this? Yeah, and it falls. He sets the glass down. It teeters for a second and then it falls and shatters. And I feel like that's what Brujan is saying about society, that we're trying to balance on the edge here and we're just falling. He's looking at he's looking at society and saying we're not yeah we're not gonna balance this correctly we're gonna we're gonna eventually shatter yeah then you're not wrong and I don't agree with that worldview but he does express it in a way that is wholly unique and technically very interesting this is this is the first person in a while like director where as soon as the movie ended because again I saw Man Escape I was okay with it and I saw this and I don't know what it is but as soon as I ended this I just I googled him. And I thought, I want to watch all of his movies. And I don't know why. And I think I'm going to go to the donkey one next. Is it, is it on this list? It Are is. You... It's a lot higher up. So okay, you have a so while. I'll just wait. I'll just wait. No, no. Watch it. Yeah, you're probably right. I kind of want to watch. I'll watch other Brassans in preparation for the donkey one. Sure. Uh, does this deserve to be on the BFI list? I think there's some other movies that deserve to be on here more. But sure. It's an interesting and well-made movie that, at least on that level, sure. I can see why it's on here. I don't even know if I would say yes. I'm being charitable with that yes. I'm I, just going to say. I, yeah, no, I got that. I, I'm i going to say no. Despite this being my favorite movie that I've seen so far on this list, I'm going to say no. You know, I love how we both started. You were like, I love this movie. And I was like, I'm going to disagree <laughs> with you there. And now we're we're taking reverse positions. Where I'm, no, I yes, still love this movie. The, I still think list. this is my favorite movie on the list. Yeah, but like we're coming to opposite conclusions. Yes. Regarding the BFI. It is a movie that on the outside is great and on the inside is dumb. And I think to be on this list, you have to have both. I was just so enamored. Yeah, screw it. It doesn't deserve to be here. <laughs> and again, this is my favorite movie I've seen so far. But it does not deserve to be on the list. I looked at my rankings of all the BFI movies so far. All the French ones are on top. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Aside from Marion Bad for me, because that's second to last. For you, it might be a little different. But all Madame Day and Les Samurai are my two favorites. And then this one and last year at Marion Bad are 
strong follow-ups. Well, point is, we can consider Madame Day to be the consensus pick to best on so far. So far, yes. Yes. Consensus Although I, I, may, I prefer, right, I prefer Les Samurai more. And I prefer L'Argent. L'Argent means money, in case you oh, yeah, never look that up. Because I think that was even said in the in the movie, like the subtitles. Because I watch on the Criterion channel, I think it even said money. So, you know, the French, they might be onto something. I don't know, because we, ca- yeah, we came into this podcast very anti-French. <laughs> and I think, I think we just, we've realized that we don't hate the French, we just hate Godard. <laughs> it's, it's fun to, to hate. It is. And we'll probably continue with the joke long after we've realized that we don't actually hate Godard all that much, but maybe we we'll do. We'll see. We'll see. I've still only seen the one and his cameo, quote unquote, in Faces Places. All right, Chandler, would uh, would you like to remind the good folks what is coming up next week? Oh, I, lo- I, I do know it this time because I saw it on the show notes. Let me just double check. Actually, you don't need to know it because we don't have a movie next week. Do we not? No. Well, it says here. Oh, after that. Well, it's the decade list next week. Next yeah, time. No, it says after that, though. So I won't even say what the movie is. That's good because it gives me a long. It gives me a lot of time to watch this movie, which I'll need. The movie after next episode, so episode eleven, will be the Deer Hunter, and you know what? I think that's going to be a good, good episode to pair with nineteen seventeen. Well, I guess I got to see nineteen seventeen now. You were going to watch it. I know you're not excited for it. But... Yeah, I'll, I'll probably watch it tomorrow with uh, Sanju and Nick. Good. We and maybe we'll get. That'll be our first episode with a traditional guest. Okay, I'm down. Have you seen the Deer Hunter? I have not. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, have you? No, I have not. I I have not been lo- alive long enough to fit in a screening of the Deer Hunter. Maybe if I start tonight, I'll be ready for next episode. We'll see. 